Would you please stand? Philippians chapter 2. We just sang words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our attitude. In the radiance of your purity. Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Oh, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Please be seated. We just saw here, Paul says the word of life. And Martin Luther has a famous sentence. The Word of God is alive. It has feet. It has mouth. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. The Bible has hands. It lays hold of me. So may the Lord do that in our lives. Take hold of us. Run after us. Capture us. Put us to death. And resurrect us. Through His Word. When we, we often talk about church service or worship service, and I'm not here to criticize. I think those are wonderful terms and expressions that we should use. But I think very little thought is given to the expression worship service or church service. We would ask you, what would you like the church service to be? If I think if we would ask many Christians, how should the church service be? I think very few people would emphasize the word service. For most churchgoers, the church service or the worship service must be very comfortable, pleasant, relaxing, enjoyable. Don't you dare ask me to serve during the worship service. It's interesting because the, the, the expression worship service is, is actually a good redundancy. And I mean redundancy because worship throughout, especially the Old Testament, the word for worship is the same word as serving or service. So, for example... In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord declares that He's going to bring about the great act of redemption, the Exodus. And He says, But I, I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall and you'd expect to worship God on this mountain, right? That's what we're expecting. But that's the same as serving. Worship, serving. You, will, you shall serve God on this mountain. David Peterson has an excellent book called Engaging with God, a Biblical Theology of Worship. He says, The language of service implies that God is a great king who requires faithfulness and obedience from those who belong to him. 
The Old Testament indicates in several ways that service to God and service to His people are interrelated as part of worship. Service. Service. Paul says the, to the Thessalonians, he says, uh, we can put we here, we turn to God. That's what salvation is. Turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 So salvation is basically a change of service. You no longer serve yourself and your silly, worthless idols, but you serve the living God. That's salvation, service, service to God. Or Paul tells the Romans, the Christians in Rome, I appeal, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's the foundation of all service, the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service or your, your worship, Paul says. So, the Roman Catholics, they go to church, to watch, as if possible, the sacrifice of Christ once again during the Mass. That's the point. You go to service and suddenly you are there, very little participation, and you watch after the words of the man who stands at the priest, suddenly there is the sacrifice of Jesus once again there. You don't come here to do that. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, once for all, you come to church as living sacrifices. You become the sacrifice. Through your singing, putting to death your concerns, through the, paying close attention to the preaching, serving one another, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, many offerings were called korban. Korban is something that means to bring near to God. You are bringing near to God yourself. And you remember the offerings were very expensive, sacrificial. You did not bring what was cheap. And that implies that as you are having fellowship, as if you are having, as if you are a meal with the king, you are saying, you deserve all that I have. I love drawing near to you so much that I love to sacrifice the best and have fellowship with you. Therefore, as we apply to the New Testament, all that we do, especially as we think about church, as we are preparing ourselves to come to church, as we are in church, as a church, should be all done with the view of sacrifice, service. Amen? We don't like that. No! I want comfort, relaxation. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Spurgeon once said, and he was talking to ministers, to pastors, but I think, and I believe we can apply that to all Christians. He says, it's our duty and privilege, duty and privilege, to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. Amen? Sadly for many, Churchgoers, the idea that the church service and the Christian life must be costly, that requires sacrifice on your part, is strange. It's foreign. It's alien. And becomes actually offensive 
Can you believe that they're asking me to serve in that church? Can you believe that they're requiring me to sacrifice my comfort and my time to serve those people? Oh, I have heard people saying, I'm leaving that church. Oh, why? Oh, they're asking me to serve. They want me to serve. I need to be served. Therefore, the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2 are a gift of, from God to all of us. Say, hey, here, here, here's what the Christian life is. Here's what you need to understand about worship service, church service. And that's what Paul gives us right here. Philippians chapter 2. And as you remember, we are developing from chapter 1, verse 27. That's the context. Paul is talking about the Christian conduct, the Christian lifestyle that matches the gospel of Jesus. And he's talking about a life of humility. Remember? A life of humility in order to preserve the unity, to reflect the triunity of our God. And a sacrificial life will inevitably lead to unity. Right? Why don't we have unity? Because somebody is not willing to sacrifice. Amen? Why are the fights and quarrels among you? Somebody's not willing to sacrifice. You never have a fight when two, per, two people are just ready to sacrifice their wills and desires. Amen? Have you ever heard about people fighting because both of them were so willing to sacrifice their desires? When we are humbled by the sacrifice of Christ, that's verses 5 through 11... When we are humbled by His sacrifice, described there, we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of Christ. So, here's the outline, and today's the last sermon here in, in, in this wonderful section of verses 12 through 18. Next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, we come to verse 19. So, we saw, verse 12, Paul is drawing a logical co connection from the preceding verses. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, the word obey connecting to Jesus who obeyed. Fight for the victory that's yours or work out your salvation. Remember, it was tempting to think, alright, since God is the one working us both to will and to do, let go and let God. And Paul comes and he Counterattack the idea by saying, yes, God is working you. That's why you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And how we are going to work out, that's in verse 14. He tells us, by mortify, putting to death all, not some, or most of it, all grumbling, murmuring, and arguing. How was this week for you? Did you remember last Lord's Day, the, 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 the Word of God talking about murmuring and grumbling and arguing and complaining? Was there any time during this week that you were convicted and you caught yourself, ah, here am I murmuring and grumbling and arguing when the Lord told me to put to death all this murmuring and grumbling? And then Paul gives the reasons, and that's where we are. The reasons for fighting for the victory through mortifying, putting to death, all grumbling and arguing. So, here we go. And we see that it's, it's actually a twofold reason. You can see verse 15, so that, and then in verse 16, so that. And he's giving the reasons why we must behave in this manner. And he gives... One reason is evangelistic. One reason is for the advancement of the kingdom throughout the world. And the other one is pastoral. is related to leadership. So we saw, I just want to review very briefly and quickly with you, the evangelistic reason. We saw that last Lord's Day. 
Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, remember, not without sin. That's not what the word means. Blameless and innocent children of God. Meaning, by behaving in this manner, you are displaying what? Your paternity. That God is your father, not Satan. Satan and all his children and all his army is marked by murmuring, grumbling, lack of humility. Not God, not the Trinity. We never hear about God the Father arguing with God the Son, and God the Son arguing with God the Spirit. No. But that's why he says, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The picture here is of an army surrounded by its enemies. And that's the church in Philippi. And we can apply to all of us as a church. And the world surrounding us. Twisted, angry enemies looking for blemish in our body to point and say, Do you see? Ah, look at how heinous you are. Just like Satan, the accuser. That's what Paul is saying here. And then Paul says that the church, as the army of Christ, is to attack. How? Holding firm or holding forth. And and both are inseparable. Because if you're holding firm... You will be holding forth the light. Amen? You cannot hold a spotlight without bringing light to other places. By holding forth and holding firm the word of life without murmuring, without arguing, so others can see the beauty of God, of the Trinity in our lives. A different type of people that rejoices. A people that is always ready to give thanks. Full of gratitude, contentment. That's the opposite of the world. The world is marked by grumbling, murmuring, arguing. And Paul says that the gospel is the word of life. The word of life. Why the word of life? Someone asks you, Why is the gospel called the word of life? The word of life? And you can say it's the word of life because it comes from the living one. Amen? Jesus, the living one. It's the word of life because it brings life. Nothing else can bring life. And that's... Wonderful news for all of us who are parents or grandparents, spiritually or physically. Sometimes we are tempted to believe that there will be techniques, there will will be ways and methods that we can bring life to those dead, unregenerated little ones. And there is no way to bring life to them Unless the word of life is being proclaimed into their hearts. Unless the word of life is being demonstrated by our lives. And we live in a a time where the word of life is being put aside. And it's all about techniques. Psychology. To how to influence your children. Your grandchildren. And remember that the word of life, you look at those little kids, they're beautiful, but they're all dead inside. They hate Christ. And they're very good sometimes in showing, putting forth hypocrisy and pretending that they love Christ. But in reality, there must be a work of regeneration. And that's the word of life that comes and brings life. And the same for the society. We see churches putting away the word of life. We need to do more things. And we need to do more things. And no preaching of the gospel. What happens? You have a bunch of people entertained. 
clean teeth, drinking good water, and yet heading to hell because they're dead spiritually. We need the Word of Life. And it's beautiful that Paul is grounding himself in the Old Testament because if you remember in the Old Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel, was supposed to be a light to the nations. Remember the menorah, the lampstand in the center of the tabernacle showing that God was there and and spreading its light to the nations. They failed. Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises, the true Israel, He fulfills. He is the true light of the world. And because we are in Him, now Paul can say that we are this beautiful body of people shining forth the light of Christ. Also, he's using here Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 speaks of the time of the end. The latter days, when the Messiah would come and inaugurate the last days. Daniel speaks in Daniel 12 of a resurrection unto life for those whose names are in the book of life. And he says that those who are resurrected, they will shine like the stars. Oh, wait a second. Now Paul is applying that passage from Daniel 12 to Christians in Philippi. That's amazing. And some of you are asking, but wait a second. I thought that that passage was about the the final resurrection. And you see, Paul's eschatology, Paul's understanding of the last days is already, but not yet. We are already in Christ. We have already been raised with Christ. Therefore, he can apply Daniel chapter 12 to the church. I don't want to spend much time here. So that was the evangelistic reason for obeying, fighting for the salvation, putting to death all murmuring and arguing. Now there is a pastoral purpose for killing all grumbling and arguing and complaining. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look at verse 16b, the last part of verse 16. So that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul is saying, as you shine forth the gospel of Christ, as you behave as children of God with humility, putting to death all murmuring and arguing, I'm convicted, I'm certain that all my pastoral, all my apostolic work was not in vain. I can see in your lives. That's what Paul is saying here. First of all, he mentions the day of Christ. Look at that, verse 16. So that in the day of Christ, the day of Christ is, going back to the Old Testament, there was the day of the Lord. And now the day of the Lord becomes the day of Christ. Because Christ is Lord. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And, and there are two aspects of the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. In one sense, the day of the Lord, when you study the Old Testament, was a time of judgment and salvation. So if you read, especially the minor prophets, they talk about the day of the Lord. Amos, Joe, the day of the Lord, a day of darkness. But at the same time, it's a day of salvation for God's people. And with Christ, there is the inauguration that happened on the cross. There was darkness. That's part of the day of the Lord He's removing, remove the powers of the, all authorities and it's given to the Son of Man. So there is the inauguration, but there is the consummation when Christ comes back again. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's the final day. It's the day of accountability. The day when we all stand before the Lord Jesus to give an account for our stewardship. Whew! Jesus talks a lot about stewardship. How you're managing His things. And that's what the day of Christ is. is when we all hear, and it doesn't matter if you believe in Christ or not, we all will stand before Him and give an account of how we use 
His time, His energy, His goods, His money. Because it's all His. And we are going to always stand and give an account. Paul emphasized this great day very frequently. You can read his letters and he often talks about the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. It's fascinating. It's like it's on his schedule. He doesn't know when it's coming, but he knows it's coming. But you know when your phone, you have something scheduled and pops up? Like, oh, I have an appointment at 3 o'clock. Paul, every single day, he was reminded of the day of Christ. There is a day coming when I'm going to stand before Christ. I'm going to give an account for how I'm living for Him. Paul ordered his life in light of the coming day of Christ. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if we were thinking more often about the day of Christ? Can you imagine, as you're watching movies, worthless, worthless movies, and you remember, I'm going to stand before my Lord to give an account for this time I'm spending here. Because that's His time. Your use of the phone, computer, how many hours you waste checking social media of people who you don't even care, and people who don't even care about you. And you're going to stand before the Lord and you've got to give an account for all those hours. How different would be how we treat one another. How we raise our children. How we look at each other in the church. How we give. How we save. How we live. Because that day will be the day of declaration. So many people profess to be Christians. But on that day when you stand before Christ, He's going to say, okay, you profess to be a Christian. But here's your record. Here's your life. You profess to be in union with me. But here is your life. Depart from me. I never knew you. So Paul keeps this day before his eyes. That's something we all should tattoo in our eyeballs. The day of Christ. Day of Christ. You look at people, everywhere you look, you've got to remember the day of Christ. When we stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for what I think it's my time, my money, my energy, my strength. And he's going to say, no, 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 no. I'm the Lord of the universe. So Paul says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And here once again Paul is using the military language. Running. Striving, laboring. We often think about athletics, sports, and the military. For Greeks and Romans, military, sports. They're connected. Running, wrestling, boxing. That was all part of military training. That then they developed and became more for the public. But all this language comes from the military background. So Paul says, I did not run. Treho, that's the Greek word. The word was used for the rapid movement of the feet. Rushing on into war or as running a race. And then he talks about labor. Kopiao means to engage in hard work, implying difficulties and trouble. The word pictures the most intense and strenuous effort, like of those of soldiers in the battlefield. That's what Paul is picturing here. One scholar says, Paul has like a Roman centurion 
in the front ranks, being the first one to run towards the enemy with the gospel, expecting that the troops would follow right behind him. So, running, laboring, the complete opposite of resting, relaxing, easy life. That same word for labor, Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, same Greek word, labor in preaching and teaching. Implying what? Requires labor. Effort. You sweat to preach and teach. It's amazing to see so many men taking the office of teachers, preachers in the church, and you never see them struggling, laboring, sweating in the preparation, the application of the Word of God. That's what Paul says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. It requires labor, hard work. For Paul and the rest of the Scriptures, the Christian life is a battle. So he pictures as a soldier running to and engaging in a fight and it's sad to see so many Christians or professing Christians whose lives are never marked by running, laboring, sweating for the kingdom and for the king. That's heartbreaking. So many people profess to be Christians, but their lives are never marked by this running to battle. Laboring, sweating for the work of Christ. So Paul says, so that in the day of Christ, let's see if I have here. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And it might sound arrogant. Wow, Paul, now you're talking about boasting and being proud. What are you talking about, Paul? Are you boasting? Being arrogant? Being prideful? And you've got to remember Paul. You've got to remember Paul's lifestyle. You must remember Paul's declaration of life for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. His whole life is Christ. You must remember Galatians chapter 6. I will boast on nothing but the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians. For when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing else but what? Christ and Him crucified. So remember, Paul is always motivated by the cross of Christ. That's his only boast. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, Lord, what I want to do, and he's telling the Philippians to you, what I, what I long is on that day when I stand before God and all the mouths, as Paul himself says, all the mouths will be shut. No one can give an excuse before Christ. No one can boast about his own works. Paul is saying, I just want to have my mouth shut and just point to that church in Philippi. And say, Lord, your grace in me caused me to work hard. And now we can see them prospering. That's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I work harder than all the other apostles. Remember, his life, he was not one of the twelve. He didn't spend that time with Christ. So he said, I had to work harder than all the other apostles. But actually, that wasn't me. That was what? The grace, the grace of Christ working in me. So 
So that's what Paul is doing here. It's not a sinful boast. It's actually that the glory of Christ may be expanded. But we see also that there is duties and responsibilities. Mutual duties and responsibilities. We see that Christian leaders have duties. They have a debt towards the congregation. Amen. Christian leaders, they have a responsibility, they have a duty, a debt towards the church. Amen? We leaders in the church owe you integrity, faithfulness, purity, the right handling of the Scriptures, love, faithful oversight of the church. That's all we owe you. God demands that from us to you. But there is also duties that belongs to the congregation, to the leaders. That's how the Bible is. The congregation have duties. And one of the most important duties that the church, the congregation has towards their leaders is to apply into your lives the gospel, which we sow strenuously and hard labor for you. You have a duty, an obligation to be applying all the gospel that we give to you as we meet with you, as we have counseling, as we are preaching, as we are teaching. You have the duty to apply that to your lives. Can you imagine? All this time, preaching and teaching, studying the Scriptures, forsaking personal time. And then you have a church who doesn't even care about applying that into their lives. That would be in vain. That would be in vain. In Hebrews chapter 13, you can open there so you can see with your eyes. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You see the mutual duties. Mutual responsibilities. As those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. And not with groaning. For they will be of no advantage to you. So leaders have responsibilities. And that's, that's what Paul is saying here in verse 16. B. I have the responsibility to toil for you. On your behalf, and you have the responsibility of applying all my work, all my preaching, all my teaching into your lives. So when I stand before Christ, that was not in vain. <laughs> Mutual accountability. Stephen Fowler, one scholar, he says, Paul... Paul and the Philippians are engaged in each other's lives to such a degree that they can bear each other's burdens and rejoice in each other's successes. Moreover, Paul recognizes that he is accountable before God for the state of the Philippian church. Listen to this. For people truly schooled in the habits of individualism in all aspects of our lives, it's difficult to imagine being held accountable for our participation in the life of a local Christian community. For people truly schooled in the habits of individualism in all aspects of, lives, of our lives, it's difficult to imagine being held accountable for our participation in the life of a local Christian community. For most American Christians, it's inconceivable that we might be held accountable before God for the lives of our fellow believers. He says, of course, we do not precisely share in Paul's apostolic call. Nevertheless, it also seems implausible 
that Paul, and only Paul, is to be held responsible for the churches he founded, while other believers can simply focus on the state of their own souls through a series of privatized transactions with God. Meaning, we are so indoctrinated by our society about the importance of me, myself, my life, my personal growth, my spiritual life, that you say that Jesse has a responsibility with Sam, that Sam has a responsibility with Tracy, that would be scandalous. No, 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 that's my life. But that's not what the Bible says. God's purpose for the Christian local church is a deep partnership in the gospel of Christ to such a degree that we share our sufferings, we share our trials, we share our joys, our blessings, our possessions, our gifts, in such a way that we need each other. My life must be marked by such a deep affection for my church that I'm willing to die for the members of my church. And remember Paul's words, you all. He keeps repeating that, you all. You all, not some members whom I like, some members whom I have a good time, but to all the members of my church. Am I willing to literally die for the sake of Tom, Sarah, Hannah? Or would I preserve my life and say, hey, too bad. I have things to do here. John says, By this we know love. That's how we know love. It's not by little hearts that you see or things you hear. Here's how you know love. That He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let us love, not only in word or talk, but in deeds and in truth. First John 3.16-3.18. We always love John 3.16. But remember, First John 3.16-18. This is love. That I lay down my life for Dan. That I lay down my life for Daniel. A private, comfortable, isolated, independent, easygoing life is not the life that the Christ offers to His people in this life. That's why Paul says, I run... I labor for you. Let that be not in vain, please. And if you doubt that, look at the next verse. The next verse makes even more sense. How he's talking about sacrificial lifestyle. Because look at verse 17. Now he gives... Remember, he gave Christ as an example. And that's what Paul has been doing through this letter. He's giving exhortation and example. Exhortation example. Following the pattern of a a farewell in ancient times. So he says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. So here is a clear example or demonstration of the mindset. Remember the fronel, the mindset, chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mindset be in you. That was in Christ Jesus. And here's an example of this mindset. He gave Jesus and now He gives Himself. Next Lord's Day, we're going to see that He gives Timothy as an example. And then He's going to give another one, Epaphroditus. So Paul is an example of the type of lifestyle that counts others more significant than himself. The type of life that does nothing from selfish ambition but instead does all things without grumbling and arguing. So here's the remedy. This church is a wonderful church. Paul loves this church. 
No other church in the New Testament you have this personal affection between Paul and his members here. But he sees that there is something kind of destroying the unity of that church. There is grumbling, there is murmuring, there is division there. And he needs to fight that. So he says, even if, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Once again, Paul is drawing from the Old Testament. You see how without the Old Testament, the New Testament makes no sense? The Old Testament is crucial. And Paul now is going to the, the, the sacrificial system. And there was the drink offering in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 29, number 15. You have the drink offering. Some other passages. Leviticus 2, I believe, talks about the drink offering. And what was the drink offering? You say, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> so the drink offering was part of the major offerings. So, for example, you had the grain offering. And the grain offering would be those beautiful, wonderful breads and cakes that they would make and bring before the Lord. With the, made with the grains. Or they would be bringing a lamb, an animal, as a sacrifice to the Lord. But in a meal, you have the food and you have what also? The drinking. And the wine especially would make glad as if it were the heart of the Lord as they are having a fellowship. And the drink offering would be poured either around or over the major offering. That's important. The drink offering was not the major offering. It was added to the major offering to enhance, to bring completion. But the major offering was either the lamb, the animal, or the Cakes and bread that they were brought. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul sees himself not as the great sacrifice. No, 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 no. Actually, he talks about the sacrifice of the Philippians. Look at that. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon what? The sacrificial service of your faith. You guys are the major sacrifice. And I'm glad to be just the little aspect that enhances, that brings a little taste to the offering. Paul is not looking for the spotlight or the greatest place he longs to see the Christians in Philippi being the main sacrifice before the Lord. He desires to see their humility, their lack of selfishness, mortification of grumbling and, and murmuring as the main sacrifice. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I don't mind, honestly. I'm about to have my head chopped off. Pretty soon I'll be on my knees and my head will be rolling on the floor, they might cut my head off, behead me. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't mind. As long as you are living as sacrifices before the Lord, putting to death all selfishness, all self-centeredness, all grumbling, all murmuring. That's what Paul is saying. Actually, if they cut my head off and I die and I'm poured out as a drink offering, I will rejoice and be glad as long as you are being faithful to the Lord. You are being faithful to the Gospel. If they put me to death and in the end I stand before the Lord and I don't see you guys applying all the sacrifice that I made, then that will be in vain. So 
let me ask you, is that your heart? Are you eager to use your life and spend all that you have investing in others that they might be the great sacrifice? So Paul says, even if I, I like the NIV, the NIV says, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. The word offering there, liturgos, from where we get liturgy, was related to religious service, serving. So Paul describes their lives Despite the distance, remember Paul, we don't know where Paul is. Is Paul in Rome? Is Paul in Ephesus? Is Paul in Caesarea? We know he's far away from the Philippians. And yet, because of their union in Christ, he can see they all together as a sacrifice before the Lord. That's beautiful. Despite their being separated by the distance, Paul and the Philippians, he sees them together as being placed before the altar of Christ as a sacrifice. And we see that true faith is always sacrificial faith. Okay? True faith is always sacrificial. Amen? And that's a good thing for you to challenge friends that you have that profess to be Christians. They profess to be Christians. They profess to have faith in Christ. But they never live lives that reflect a living sacrifice. And you must challenge. Hey, the Bible says that true faith is always sacrificial. We could start with Abel. Because his life, his faith in the Lord. How about Abraham? Sacrifice Isaac. And he goes... Ultimately, we think about Christ Jesus, who is the Lamb who was slain. So, when we believe in Jesus, when we have faith in Christ, we are embracing the Lamb of God who was sacrificed. Therefore, we are molded, we are joined to Him, and we also become living sacrifices. And look what Paul says. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, what does he do? What, what does he do? I grumble and murmur. I complain that I'm dying, you're alive. I'm so upset that you guys are free and I'm here arrested. What does Paul say? I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. That's amazing. That's the completely opposite of our world's idea of happiness and bliss and joy. Paul rejoices and is glad because his life is being poured out for others to serve Christ. And for so many, that would be too heavy. That's too heavy, too much. Talk about sacrifice. And now not only sacrifice, but rejoice and be glad in sacrificing. Are you out of your mind? If it's not enough to sacrifice myself, now you're saying that I need to be happy with that. I need to rejoice and be glad. You see, that's the problem. We are bombarded. With the idea that it's all about me. Enjoy yourself. Please yourself. And I see on billboards that I'm driving. Treat yourself. Enjoy yourself. Fulfill yourself. And then Christianity comes and says, kill yourself. The self must die. It's all about others. The sacrifice of yourself must be the engine bringing joy to you. The Christian life is energized not by self-love, but by sacrificial love. A love that delights in sacrificing for others, for the good of others. Sadly, 
It's heartbreaking. But so many Christians, their mentality is always, their question is, what is the problem with that? That's the question that they come to ask. Well, what is the problem with that? What is the issue with that? Comes you giving. Is 10% enough? You know what the problem is with these questions? When you're a living sacrifice, you're not asking, what is the problem with that? Or what's wrong with this? It's how is this reflecting a life of sacrifice? How is this reflecting my union with the one who was sacrificed for me? We see a great number of professing Christians living, they're living a very safe, a decent life. I would say a decent life. But they remain with the poor, mediocre mentality of what's wrong with this? And what's the problem with that? And they see, we might never see any blemish in their lives. We might never see anything ugly, a heinous sin. But we never see a sacrificial life. So many Christians. You might not see adultery, fornication, laziness. They're decent. But never marked by man. They sacrifice all that they have on behalf of the Lord and the Lord's people. They live a decent life, a safe life. People say, what a nice family. But they can never say, what a sacrificial family. And then Paul's final call. Look at verse 18. And he's saying, that's not just for me. The rejoicing and being glad with sacrificing, that's for you too. <laughs> And there is an exhortation. It's an imperative. It's a command. Look how he says, Likewise, you also, and here's the imperative, must be glad and rejoice with me. No, no, no. No murmuring, no grumbling, no arguing, no complaining. Instead, rejoicing, being glad with me. And you see that Paul commands that. And we, as Christians, we can and must be commanded to rejoice because we have control over our actions. Amen? The Holy Spirit controls us and joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Paul can commands us to rejoice. And we must obey. We must rejoice. Some of you are looking like, oh, what are you talking about? Joy, just like gentleness, just like goodness, just like love, just like patience, is a fruit of the Spirit. If you are in Christ or indwell with the Spirit of Christ, He controls you, He produces these things in you, and you have an obligation to live these things in your life. So Paul can and must command, rejoice. Be glad with me. Rejoicing the Lord is the art, is the art of growing in contentment. Here's a church having problems with grumbling, murmuring, arguing with one another, implying what? Some people are not being content in the Lord. Some people are not being satisfied and giving thanks to the Lord. Some people are thinking too highly of themselves. And Paul says, put to death those things, live as a sacrifice, and rejoice in them. And here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Because sometimes you might think, wow, how is that possible? And it is possible through the word of life. 
because the gospel is the word of life, we can and we must live like that. When the gospel or the word of life truly comes to us, it devours us. Just like the fire in the sacrifice, it devours us. That's why Jeremiah says that the word of the Lord is like a fire. The author of Hebrews says that the word of the Lord is like a what? A sword. And just like a sacrifice, it comes and cuts us, pierces us, removes our viscerous, places us on the altar. And then what does the word of life do? Brings life. Resurrect us into life with Christ. So lives that were once marked by selfishness, lives that were once marked by self-centeredness, lives that were once marked by grumbling, arguing, complaining, self-love, now become, because of the word of life, now those lives that were marked by selfishness, self-centeredness, grumbling, arguing, now become image bearers of the Lamb of God. Feet that once ran to do evil and hands that toiled and worked really hard for selfish reasons now run and toil for the good of others. That's what the gospel does. Amen? Amen? I hope it's true in your life, brothers and sisters. Feet and hands that once ran and were toiling hard for selfish reasons now is running and toiling hard to serve others. Lives that were once marked by laziness because of the power of the gospel now are marked by running, toiling, sweating to serve Christ and His people. Lives that were once striving so hard to be preserved and protected, now they rejoice in being poured out as a drink offering. I pray that the gospel do continue doing that in our lives. The world is all about preservation. Preserve yourself. Save yourself. Preserve yourself. Save. 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 It's all about safety outside, right? Isn't it all about safety outside? It's all about safety. We need to save you. We need to preserve you. Economically, we need to save. I need to save my family. And the gospel comes and shows us the beauty of a life that's marked by sacrifice. And you say, that's the life. That's the life. Just like Christ's life. And then we do just like Paul. Because it's the gospel, the good news. News of gladness, news of joy, we also rejoice and be glad in following Jesus Christ through the narrow road and imitating Him in sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. That's the gospel. I can testify. With my own life, a life that was self-centered, feet that ran to do evil, hands that labor for selfish reasons, and when the gospel came, crushed me. Just like a, a sword killed me, and the word of life brought life. And now the feet, the hands that were so selfish, with joy, with joy, is used to serve others. And I know that many of you here is the same thing. Your testimony, the same. And what do we do? We fall on our knees and say, All glory be to Christ. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your kindness towards us. We thank for Your mercy, Your grace, in piercing us 
challenging us, confronting us. How sad it would be for us to leave this place thinking that we have already reached perfection. How good it is to come knowing that you are working our lives and you are transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the gospel, the word of life that brought life into us. And Lord, we pray that you bring life to those who are dead in their sins. Bring life to them. Help them to run to the cross. Help their hands to embrace Jesus right now, Lord. There is no better life. There is no more fulfilling life than the life of a sacrifice for your people. How good it is, Lord, to exhaust ourselves and labor hard for those for whom you died. Help us as a church. Help us as a church to shine your light in this dark world, Lord. Help us to put to death all grumbling, murmuring, arguing, complaining, and instead rejoice and be glad. And see the opportunities, Lord. Opportunities when it's tempting to get mad and disappointed. To see those opportunities as your grace in our lives for us to sacrifice ourselves. Thank you for the many, many examples here in this church. Many moms, many mothers here reflect that as they're sacrificing their lives to raise their children for your glory. Thank you for the members here who show this eagerness, this desire to lay their lives upon your altar. So hold us. Hold us fast. Hold us strong for the glory of your name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.